Welcome to the Business of Being Brilliant, where I explore the human side of work. I talk to business leaders, academics, authors and other experts about when they've worked at their best and when they've floundered. We find out how to change organisations for the better so that everyone can flourish. I'm your host, Helen Beedham, organisational expert, speaker and author of the Amazon best-selling business book, The Future of Time. All the show notes are on my website at helenbeedham.com, where you can also sign up for my monthly insights into the latest work trends, plus some exclusive offers to help you flourish at work and at home. Now let's crack on with this week's episode. Hello, welcome back to the podcast and to series four with a fresh and fabulous lineup of guests talking about their careers and how they are influencing positive work cultures in their organisation or their industry. How's January going for you so far? Are you full of new intentions and exciting plans for the year ahead? Or are you looking for stability and continuity in 2023? Or are you tracking the radar covertly and keeping an eye on what might be coming over the horizon? Do let me know, I'd, I'd love to hear. In our world of work more generally, from conversations in December with business and HR leaders, I know that beeping loud and clear on their radar are concerns about workloads and well-being, particularly in light of the current recession and high inflation. And with organisations wanting to hit their growth and financial targets while simultaneously reducing unnecessary costs and investments and possibly even letting people go. I wrote about this in my December newsletter, Viewpoint, And in January's edition, that'll come out in a week or so, I'll be sharing my view of the solution. How to boost productivity without demanding yet more from already overstretched and anxious employees. So subscribe to the mailing list if you want to find out how to achieve this where you work. And if you happen to recruit or manage graduates, school leavers or other entry-level colleagues, my latest article for the HR Director magazine called The Tomorrow People, sets out what employers need to be offering to attract and retain younger employees. There's a free to read link in the show notes on my website. Looking back, 2022, for me personally, was fun and exciting and exhausting in equal measure. With a big birthday celebration, the launch of my business book, The Future of Time, a busy schedule of speaking events, and a long-awaited and much-loved family reunion in Australia, among other things. For 2023, I've decided that my motto for this year is fun and focus. On the 1st of March, I'll be celebrating the first anniversary of the future of time. I'm loving the conversations and initiatives it is engendering, and I'm hatching some plans for some fun ways to mark its first year in circulation including exploring the possibility of recording the audiobook. No idea if I have the right voice for that or not. Feel free to let me know, listeners. And also, if you've got any brilliant suggestions for how I might celebrate this one-year milestone for my business book, please do share them. They'll be gratefully received. 
If this is the first time you're hearing about the book, there are some helpful reviews on Amazon, Goodreads and Waterstones websites, and a big thank you to everyone who has posted these. And if you have read the book, please do add your own review, however brief, which really helps make the book visible to others in a very busy market. Last year, I successfully completed my challenge to read 50 books in 52 weeks, alternating business books with fiction. And before Christmas, I posted a short video to share my top five in each category. So if you're looking for some reading inspiration this year, or ideas for someone's present, check it out. This year, I'm continuing to read one book a week. I'm not making it a thing per se, but I am sharing my progress on my Instagram page. And here are the four books that I've chosen to read in January. First up is Choosing Courage, The Everyday Guide to Being Brave at Work by Jim Deturt, and he is my guest on the podcast next week. Secondly, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway by Susan Jeffers. You might have spotted there's a bravery theme this month. And then the two fiction reads I'm going to be enjoying, hopefully, are Death Comes to Pemberley by P.D. James. Not a new novel, but one I'd never read. And finally, The Cat Who Saved Books by Sosuke Natsukawa, which just really appealed to me when I picked it up. If one of those sounds appealing to you too, do let me know how you get on with reading it. And if you have a good suggestion or two for what I should be reading in February, do let me know. Right, time now to hear from the first guest of this fourth series, who completely inspires me on anything and everything to do with collaboration. I'm delighted to welcome this week's guest. Dr. Deborah Mashek, PhD, is an experienced business advisor, professor, higher education administrator, and national non-profit executive. Previously full professor of social psychology at Harvey Mudd College, she is the author of Collaborate, how to build incredibly collaborative relationships at work, even if you'd rather work alone. Named one of the top 35 women in higher education by diverse issues in higher education, Deb has been featured in media outlets, including the New York Times, The Atlantic, Business Week, The Heckinger Report, and Fortune. And she writes regularly for Psychology Today. Deb is the founder of Myco Consulting, where she speaks, advises, and provides professional development to those seeking to build better workplace collaborations. Welcome to the business of being brilliant, Deb. It is such a pleasure to be here, Helen. Thanks so much for the invitation, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Me too. I can't wait to get stuck in talking about collaboration, where we go wrong, how we can make that better. And I know this topic is going to really resonate with a lot of listeners because pretty much everyone has had some experience of some kind of collaboration. So when did you first start to get really fascinated by the topic of collaboration? So I go into the book a little bit around my background, having spent my formative years in a trailer park in Western Nebraska in the middle of the United States and what it was like to grow up amid a lot of addiction in the household. So that I think laid the groundwork, but professionally, I really got interested in this during my first day of graduate school. So I happened to be in this class called the psychology of close relationships with 
this professor who was fascinating and I could not get enough of the content. So I was reading every single article that was assigned. I was that student raising my hand with every single question, really excited to unpack this thing that I frankly found very mysterious, this idea that there are ways that you can actually do relationships that are healthier and less healthy. And so I got curious there, decided that my focus would be on the psychology of close relationships. So I, I seriously have a PhD in the psychology of close relationships, which still just baffles me 25 years later. And I went from there to study everything from hooking up and breaking up. And I was teaching classes in the psychology of close relationships and the psychology of community building and the psychology of collaboration. And this amazing opportunity came up out at the Claremont Colleges, where I was a professor there at Harvey Mudd College, to run this grant where the whole goal was to figure out, okay, so you've got these five independent colleges. They're all co-located on a single square mile of property. How do you compel people to work together because there are all these amazing resources in terms of the financial resources, incredible students, and amazing faculty. How do you create situations where they want to come together to co-create things that are more magnificent than what any one of those colleges could have done on their own? And it was my job to lead that effort for five years. So I totally realized that all of these relationship theories that I had been chewing on for a lot of years were very relevant to interorganizational relationships as well. So that was this stepping off point. Then the 2016 election happened here in the United States and the world kind of melted down on campuses. So I decided to leave my tenured full professorship. I moved cross country as a single mom with an eight-year-old in tow to help launch this national nonprofit called Heterodox Academy, which is focused on viewpoint diversity and helping people understand each other from different ideological divides. And then after that, I decided I wanted to go ahead and get back to what I felt was a, a more fun thing of helping people just build better collaborations, not necessarily being there in the center of the culture wars. So that's a, when I decided to launch Myco Consulting, where, as you mentioned, I work with business leaders to improve the collaborations that are unfolding in their spaces. That's so fascinating to hear. I would never have known that you can have a PhD in the science of close relationships. So I've learned something straight away about that. And really interesting to hear, I guess, the different applications that you can use it for and how you've chosen to focus organizations, the world of work, and how teams and people work together in organizations. And as an expert on collaboration, I do have to ask you, so what's the best collaboration you've experienced and what's the worst one, if you're happy to describe uh, them? Yeah. So first of all, I'll say that having a great lens for understanding collaboration, I think it helps a little bit in creating great collaborations, but man, I still have struggles. So just to say, oh yeah, no, this is real. And in fact, when I collected data for the workplace collaboration study, I did ask people have you ever been in a collaboration that you would describe as absolutely incredible? And I'm delighted to report that 85% of people said, yes, in fact, they have. But for the record, 72% said that they've been in a collaboration that was absolutely horrendous. So if, if you're like me and you have, in fact, been in great collaborations and horrible, been horrible collaborations, that's kind of a join the club situation. So let's see, you want to talk about the best one, one of the best yeah. ones first? Yeah. Okay. So one of the best ones that pops to mind right away 
is when I was at Heterodox Academy, it was a brand new organization and we were really working to put the organs in the organization. And I knew right away that I needed an operations person to come in with me. And I hired this woman, Manal, who was just an absolute rock star because we there were a couple features that made this collaboration especially robust and satisfying. One is that she was incredibly competent, incredibly conscientious. So we partnered really well there. And then there was this complementarity where I love to talk about vision and she was able to take that idea and move it into these really specific tactical things. And we both love talking about strategy and we would always just take the whiteboard off the wall. We would set it on the floor, grab our copies, sit there with our sticky notes and our markers and just think together. And we would leave these meetings with crystal clarity on what each of us needed to do. And then there was this incredible conscientiousness and follow through on both of our parts. So it felt like magic in a bottle to get to work with her. So that's an example of a one-on-one collaboration that was absolutely inspiring. And it's one of the reasons I dedicate the book to her. That's wonderful to hear. And are there some painful collaborative experiences that stick in your memory or do they just kind of merge into a few lessons on how not to do it? (laughs) When I interviewed people for the book, this one interview described the idea of burn marks, that when you've been in these bad collaborations, they stick with you. And it's, it's like this residue that is really hard to get rid of. And it colors your perception and your eagerness to jump back into another sort of collaboration. So absolutely, I've had my fair share. Some of them They really fit a type as a recovering academic. You know, for those who don't know academia, one of the things you do, especially in psychology, is you have to write a lot of papers for peer review. And a lot of those papers are co-authored. And the number of authorship experiences where, you know, big visions where we're going to do this great thing. And then crickets where you would write something and you wouldn't hear back from the co-author or they were supposed to write this section and you haven't heard back from them for weeks and then months. And then you're just like, is this paper over and done with? Is it actually still going to happen? And just the incredible frustration knowing that there's also this huge evaluative component. So, you know, in those situations, your ability to get reviews and promotions within the academy depend on those papers being amazing. So a lot of pain around co-authorship, I would say, Mm -hmm. is some of the biggest residue that I feel Yeah, yeah, because it sounds like there are some real consequences from not collaborating well in that example. There's some real career consequences. And the comment you shared from the person who commented in your research about burn marks, it made me think that we might feel emotionally scarred after a personal relationship has ended badly or has not been a successful relationship, has been painful in some way. But actually, I hadn't made the connection that we may also carry that baggage with us when we've had a difficult work relationship, and it might affect our outlook on how we collaborate with others after that. That seems to be what you're saying. Yes. And you nailed perfectly What I think is so interesting about this book, is it too self-aggrandizing to be like, I think this part is really interesting to come at this topic of workplace relationships, workplace collaborations from the perspective of the science of close relationships, because all of the dynamics are playing out. Like we have to figure out who are we interested enough in to pursue a collaboration with? What are our expectations around that relationship? What happens to us internally when people fail to meet those expectations? Are we actually communicating our expectations? All of these things are relevant 
in our close relationships with our friends, with our families, and certainly in our workplace relationships. So this idea that we have learning histories in all of our relationships that A, inform how we approach future relationships of that type. So my workplace history informs my future workplace willingness. But also there's this flood over where I believe that I am worthy of other people's care and responsiveness. I carry that belief with me into the workplace. It's not like you just walk into the office and somehow all of those very human needs and wants and histories disappear. So there's a bit of a a mutual information going on too there. Mm, Yeah, that's fascinating. Affects our mindset as well. So let's dig a little bit more into the book and some of the theory and the knowledge and and the amazing advice and tools you share in it. So the book comes out on the 24th of January. It's published by Practical Inspiration Publishing. In the UK, for UK listeners, the paperback is $16.99 and the ebook is $9.99 and it is available to pre-order now. And if you're listening and thinking, "Mm, I'm liking the sound of this, it sounds really interesting, shall I buy it? I'm going to share what Adam Grant, no less, number one New York Times bestselling author of Think Again and host of the TED podcast Work Life. This is what he had to say about Deb's book. We've all gotten stuck working with people we don't like. Thankfully, Deb Mashek has written a lively, actionable book to fix that. Combining her expertise as a psychologist and her experience as a consultant, she reveals how we can earn trust, repair relationships, and create collaborations that bring out the best in us. When I saw this, I was like, wow. As a business book author, I think nothing would make my life better than having an endorsement like that from someone as knowledgeable in your field as Adam Grant. So that's just amazing, a review to get. Yeah, that felt quite amazing to hear Adam say those kind things. And yeah, yeah. that was quite a thrill. And so who did you write this book for? And why did you write it? So certainly I was one of the audience members. I think so many of us who write these books are noodling on some sort of challenge. And so figuring out for myself and then wanting to share it with others around this question of what is relevant about the psychology of close relationships to these workplace relationships that are so critically important. So we know when our collaborative relationships at work are going well, that we're more engaged at work, that we're more satisfied at work, that we have better mental health. So lower anxiety, lower depression. So all of these things matter. And I imagine we might talk a little bit about some of the things that we get wrong about collaboration, but it's you know, it's really hard to do well. And so the goal was to make this curriculum, as it were, about the psychology of relationships available to a wider audience, because so many of us really do want to collaborate well. We know it's essential. We can see how good things happen in terms of how we solve the world's most trickiest problems through collaboration. But if we don't have a roadmap we encounter problems, we encounter pitfalls, tension mounts and projects fizzle, and you can end up with really good people walking away. So I wanted to bring some wisdom to this shared challenge. Fantastic. And you make the excellent point that we're typically not taught how to collaborate, not explicitly anyway, in schools, I guess, university, and then in early careers. So what is it that you see that we are getting wrong when it comes to collaboration? 
I think one of the big mythologies out there is that people are either good at relationships or they're bad at relationships and there's nothing you can do about it. And I think that belief gets in the way of offering concrete strategies, whether it's professional development or thinking more intentionally about how we're creating and structuring our work worlds to facilitate the collaboration. So what we do know is that there are better or worse things you can do to make healthy collaborations, to make healthy relationships, and that those things are learnable. And I think that surprises some people because a lot of us haven't received any professional development in how to do this. In fact, the data from the workplace collaboration study suggests it's around a third of people have received no training in how to develop these relationships. One of the funniest details I'll share from the data is that another couple people thought they had received a few minutes of training. So I think that means they might be like reading Dilbert cartoons or watching TikTok because I don't know otherwise what a few minutes of training might look like. Only a quarter of people have actually received substantial training in this. So what that means in terms of what we're getting wrong is I think there's this impulse of, yes, collaboration is good. And I'm just going to, as a director, as a manager, say, yeah, go work together. And that imagining it as some sort of mysterious black box that we can't unpack. And so you end up with people who haven't received any education in this themselves trying to train other people how to do it. So you have a lot of confusion or you get people who are really good at it and they're not quite sure why it works so well for them. So it's hard internally to diagnose what the secret sauce is. And so I, with my relationship researcher lens on, can look at it and say, oh, X, Y, and Z, this is why this is working. This is why that isn't working. So I think that's what we're getting wrong. And then the end point of all of that is we're not actually providing the sort of professional development and training that people need, or we're not looking diagnostically at how the organs in our organizations are working. And it's getting in the way of everything from morale and timelines and bottom lines and the quality of the products we're developing. Mm, That makes complete sense. And describing it as a black box, this mysterious black box is a really good metaphor. I totally get that and how you help people unpack it and see inside the box and both provide the skills, but also the diagnostics and the expertise to look at how people are collaborating. I think that sounds fascinating, just understanding what's in the black box of collaboration, because it does seem a bit You've either got it or you haven't. And as you say, if you've got it, you're the lucky one, but you might not know why you've got it. (laughs) I think you just stumbled on a fabulous topic for a webinar, unpacking the black box of collaborations. I really like that because it's like, let's demystify this. It doesn't need to be a big mystery. I think that's it. I think it does feel a bit mysterious. And when you talk about collaboration, do you mean any time you work with somebody any work that involves other people or just certain kinds of joint work? Another great question. I think this is one of the things that collaboration struggles with is this word is bandied about culturally as being everything from a collab in marketing where you have, I swear, like a bag of potato chips teaming up with a tennis shoe to save the environment or something. And you're like, what is that? But we use collaboration very generally like, oh, let's do something together. The thing is that there are a lot of different ways of doing together. So co-labor literally means together work. So a lot of different ways you could do together work. My specific understanding of it, the one that I organize all of my work around and that the book is organized around is the idea that you have two or more people who are working together intentionally to advance a specific shared goal. So there's a lot of nuance in there. 
but it's different from just lightly exchanging information as you would say in a networking situation. And it's more involved than maybe what you would do in a coordinating situation where you're altering your activities for some shared goal. And it's different from what you might do in a cooperating situation where now we're actually sharing resources and tools and whatnot, but you're actually trying to learn from others that it's through this relationship that you're making each other better at what you're doing. And that's where the real gold is. That's where you can get these collaborate relationships. Um, And I should say that continuum I was just talking about to give credit where credit is due comes from Arthur Hillman's collaboration continuum model. So he has this beautiful model. And the idea is that the resources and the capacities we need organizationally to do those different kinds of together work vary tremendously. So if we're not sure what it is we're trying to do together, it's hard to actually equip us to do it well. Yeah, that's really helpful to hear the different points along the collaboration continuum and help people figure out okay, is this a genuine shared goals, we help each other succeed kind of collaboration. And I guess sometimes people will be in a collaborative piece of work, but they haven't chosen who they're working with. And that is probably one of the occasions when sometimes there's some collaborative friction, for example, because we don't always get to choose who we collaborate with, right? Especially, yeah, in a lot of workplaces, you're voluntold. It's like, (laughs) you must go do this. I volunteered you to do this. And so sometimes our choice to be in that relationship is not ours, but our choice about how we show up in that relationship is ours to choose. How we choose to conduct ourselves, whether or not we're willing to take the time to get to know the other person, to get to know their interest. What would they really like to get out of this experience together? What's here for me to learn or what impact can I make? There are a lot of mindset moments available to individuals, even as they go into those voluntold relationships. Yeah. So how we show up in a collaboration is one key to creating a successful collaborative relationship. Can you share one or two other ingredients of a really good collaboration? I know you can't distill the whole book (laughs) in the next two minutes, but (laughs) just a couple of things to hang out there that people might go, "Uh aha, okay. Right, right. Let me tell you about the Mashic Matrix, which I realize is like this very self-referential way of talking about collaboration, but you know, my idea, I'm going to own it. The idea is that there are two main ingredients. One is you need high relationship quality. And relationship quality is your subjective sense of how good or bad the relationship is. And I won't go into them here, but in the book, I offer these nine different strategies you can use to increase relationship quality. So that's ingredient number one. Ingredient number two is interdependence. And interdependence concerns the extent to which my outcomes are contingent on your behaviors. So let's imagine Helen and Deb are in a collaborative relationship If we have structured the work such that you and I are sink or swim as a team, and it's super, super interdependent, so we have this mutuality there, but I don't like you, I don't trust you. I mentioned I'm from Nebraska, so I like a good farm metaphor. If my wagon is hitched to your ill-mannered horses, whether I like it or not, that's a miserable existence. I'm going to be stressed out. I'm going to be carrying that stress home. And it's when you have that low relationship quality combined with this really high interdependence that you get collaborate. But when you get high interdependence and high relationship quality, that's really where the magic is. That's where I call it collaborate. 
And what I think is really one of the gems of the book is I talk about how you move from one space to the other. And it's actually fairly counterintuitive that you don't necessarily want to rev up on the relationship quality first, because you're going to hit a bit of a brick wall. What I can do is make available to your listeners a really cool printable that describes this visually. It's a gorgeous graphic that Amy Trin created for me, and I'm happy to make that available if you like. Yes, fantastic. I think people will be really interested to hear that. So I will put a link to that in the show notes. And thank you for describing the matrix, starting to give some clues as to how you define great collaboration and not so great collaboration. And obviously your book's all about moving into the right box there. And so at an organisational level, how would an organisation know if they have a collaboration issue? If someone's listening, thinking, well, maybe we don't do collaboration that well. What are the warning signs or the red flags that would tell them that they've got a collaboration problem? Yeah. So when I talk to CEOs and directors and managers and ask them, what's going on? How's it going for you? Here are the kinds of pain points that they're talking about. They're talking about turfiness and power plays, about things that should be fairly simple, taking way longer. They're talking about morale being in the gutter. Things like it's as though we are separate organizations, even though theoretically we're all one organization, but it doesn't feel like that. It feels like there's competition between sales and marketing, or it feels like production and customer relations are at odds with each other. Those are huge warning signs because it means the organs and the organizations are not actually acting harmoniously, which means there's a lot of wasted effort, a lot of wasted time, certainly wasted money. And the one that makes me perhaps most sad is the wasted potential. So imagine what would be possible if all of those organs were working more harmoniously. So in that case, what I would recommend to that executive is to take a look at the layers of the collaborative culture that you have. So is collaboration actually possible? in the first place. If it's not possible, it's not going to happen. Is it easy? If it's easy, you're going to get more of it. Is it normative such that this is just the way we do things and we can look to other people and see like, sure enough, this happens. And the fourth question is, is it rewarding? So are the incentive structures that are in place actually supporting collaborative work? And at the very tippity top of those layers, are you requiring it? I don't encourage you to require it, but sometimes that can help trigger some of the the good behaviors. And so you look at that full stack within an organization diagnostically, and it tells you what you can start intervening on. So whether you might want to start working on infrastructure or interfaces or communities or the reward structures or policy, things like that. That makes sense because it could be any one of a a number of those or a combination of those uh, factors that are causing the collaborative friction. And so first you have to figure out where the real problem lies. So your diagnostic approach helps leaders understand, okay, this is the nature of the problem that's behind this slow progress, power plays, as you said, because it will manifest in any one of those business outcomes, won't it? That you won't see work happening smoothly and successfully and cheerful, productive, engaged employees. So they've got to get under that and figure out where the barriers and the blockers are. Yeah, exactly. And it could be that you have a handful of really uncollaborative people, some individuals, 
could also be the case that you've got a bad barrel over there where it's just that the relationships on that team have become toxic for some reason. And maybe that's bubbled up into the whole organization or maybe not, but diagnostically you can figure out, are we talking about, is this a problem with collaborative individuals, collaborative relationships or a collaborative culture? Yeah. That's so fascinating so that you can equip people with the tools to help them figure it out and hopefully fix it. Exactly. So it's like, once you know where the problem is, there are interventions and you can fix it. Yeah. And is there a particular resource that has helped you in your own thinking and in in your own career that you would mention and share with others in case that's helpful to them too? Sure. So let's see, I'm going to recommend one resource of somebody else's and a resource of mine, which is not totally in the spirit of the question, but because I think it'll be valuable. So I love Leanne Davies' book, The Good Fight, about A, the value of conflict in an organization and B, how to actually ensure that your different stakeholders are contributing their value when needed to do amazing things together. So I love her book. I love her LinkedIn feed. I love her newsletter. So go check out Leanne Davies. She's amazing. The second thing I want to point out is that on my website, there's a tab called Perspectives, and there I put just tons of free resources and articles and any handout I've ever made is up there. So it's a treasure trove. It's there for the taking. So please go, go make use of it. And of course, let me know if there are any questions or if you're looking for something that's not there and I might be able to create it. Brilliant. Thank you. I think someone had mentioned to me ages ago about The Good Fight, and I've not read a good book about conflict. It's been a gap in my business book reading. So thank you for reminding me. I'm definitely going to be reading that in 2023. And thank you for pointing people towards all the fantastic available resources on your website. And for people that have enjoyed listening and want to find out a bit more about the work you do or or follow your thinking and your writing, how can they connect with you? after the podcast? I think the easiest way is to go to debmashek.com. You could also do collaborhate.com. It gets you to the same place. And there you'll find all of my social links, access to my newsletter, all the things. And I love being in conversation with other people who are noodling on these topics. So please engage. I will say there you'll find a link to my TikTok which I still can't believe I'm doing TikTok, but I'm having a lot of fun posting videos and content there that's not necessarily available anywhere else. And then on LinkedIn, one of my personal goals is to post daily there things that are actually of value to the broader community. So when you go to my website and you're trying to figure out where should I connect with her, I would recommend TikTok and or LinkedIn. Brilliant. Thank you. And I know from having been talking with you over several months now that you absolutely walk the talk when it comes to collaboration you are one of the most collaboratively minded and gifted although I know it's not a gift it's a skill people I know so it's been such a pleasure talking to you about collaboration about your brilliant new book and just getting a little bit under the skin of okay how do we collaborate better when do we get it wrong and at organizational level how can we improve collaboration across all our teams thank you so much for joining me on the podcast deb you've been a brilliant yeah well it's such a pleasure and i hope you don't mind if i give you a shout out too 
and recognize your contributions to Collaborate. So just so your listeners know, I reached out to Helen and I was like, I've got this manuscript. I don't know if it's going okay. Would you mind looking at it? And you are so kind to give really detailed, actionable, thoughtful feedback on this very rough first draft. And when I look at this final product, I see your fingerprints all over it. So I'm so grateful to you for your contributions and obviously for this opportunity to get to talk about the book with you. Oh, you're very welcome. It was a real privilege to have an early glimpse of the book and I can't wait to get my hands on the final version. So looking forward to celebrating the launch with you. Thanks so much, Deb. Thank you. One of the many things that stood out for me in that conversation was how we don't really have any training in how to set up and manage collaborative relationships. We just dive right in and then wonder why it sometimes feels like the relationship is the bit that's hard work, rather than the task or the project we're working on. No wonder, too, that teams run into delays and dead ends, and businesses don't always achieve the performance outcomes they're looking for. What's collaboration like where you work? Is it a black box where you generally ignore the inner workings and hope for the best? Or is it something you talk about, learn about, and get consciously skilled up in. Next week on the podcast, we'll be talking about another virtue in our world of work, courage. My guest will be Jim Dietert, Professor of Business Administration at the Darden Graduate School of Business Administration at the University of Virginia. Jim is the author of Choosing Courage and a leading expert on courage in the workplace. Here's a sneak preview of our conversation. When it comes to courage, we like to put it in a different category and say, I guess that's just for some of us some of the time. And it's because I wasn't born that way. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons why that probably is. If you think about sort of narrative stories, the narrative about the hero is indeed that the hero is a very special kind of person, right? Is a superhero. And that narrative, of course, contributes to the idea that most of us are not that. And so one of the things I've been very conscious about in my own work is I talk about the bank teller and the supermarket clerk and people who are just like you and me, because I think the stories we tell also either reinforce the narrative that it's just special people or they help us see, no, it's people just like us who are owning the responsibility to stand up and do hard things and to practice getting better at that. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this week's episode, please rate the podcast online, leave a review and share it with friends. And if you like to watch as well as listen, don't forget the videos are also on my YouTube channel. See you next Monday. Have a great week and keep on being brilliant. Brilliant.